Well, what up, guys and girls? It is Bobby. And it's Sean. And I guess we're back. We missed last week. Did we miss last week? No, we were here last week. No, we missed last week, didn't we? No, well, no, we were here last week. It was two weeks ago, three, four, five weeks ago that we were consistently absent. Wow. This, this, isn't, a, this isn't official, like, we've, we've established some sort of uh, continuous, you know, time-space continuum between last week and this week. Oh yeah, you're right. We did we did have one last week. Wow. Yeah. I totally forgot. Yeah, we are there. We are we are present. Consistency, Indeed. that's what we're all about. Fitness wise, yes. Podcast, you get us when you get us. We've said this so many other times. Deal with it. Yeah, I am working next weekend, so I will not be available next weekend. Well see, there you go. We've now forecasted what podcast you will not have to look for next week. Although it shouldn't have to be said, but you shouldn't be looking for any other podcast regardless, because this is the only voice on the interwebs that you can trust. Uh, this is very true. In other news, this podcast is sponsored by 10,000. Use the code CronosFit15 for 15% off your first order. They've been a, a great sponsor to us. Uh, really excited to announce some of the stuff we've been working on with them. And they've been really gracious to sponsor a lot of these scholarships. So shout out to 10,000. Yeah, huge fans. Uh, it was only like, I mean, Jesus, maybe within the last eight months uh, that we talked with them. And they've got a ton of veterans outreach. It's not just Cronus Fit that they've been supporting. Uh, every single month, they've been targeting uh, soft athletes, uh, you know, quote unquote, um, and nonprofits that are military related in order to give back to the larger community. So that's like one of the things that when we saw their dedication to other groups. It wasn't just a, this is something we want to throw on social media. They rarely broadcast it. So I think it's something that should be said. It shows, at least to me, uh, their sincerity and, um, you know, giving back to the military community. Yeah. And they make some pretty sweet workout gear. Uh, big fan of the workout gear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what should we start this week's episode talking about lots of things i think we should start with uh first announcing the the four studs uh that won this year's cronus scholars we had like twice as many applications as we had last year just like twice the amount that i had the year before so we're super proud that the cronus fit scholarship has not only grown in applicants but it's it's grown in the scholarship value um, and just love seeing that people are making this transition, uh, and we just want to be there to support the costs that are associated with it. Okay, so now that we, we're, we're going to insert a drum roll. If you didn't hear a drum roll, you've heard a drum roll. Um, the four individuals uh, that we've got that are now official 2021 Cronus Scholars. We've got Devin Slaughter, Nicholas Lee, Jackson Sinat, and Anthony Allen. Um Super proud of all these dudes. Uh, three of them uh, are coming from the 75th Ranger Regiment. All of them are airborne. I feel like that maybe next year should be a requirement. Do you think you have to be airborne qualified to be a Cronus Scholar, or is that just something that we're just now setting a trend? I think just something that we've just been setting a trend. We've had a lot of like regiment guys apply, um, and you know, for those people that are thinking about applying, it, you do not have to be a regiment guy or soft apply. It just so happens that we get a lot of soft guys that do apply. Yeah, we are we are not tailoring the scholarship to only individuals that served in the Ranger Regiment. Um, but every single year, and you can see more of this on, on the website uh, under the, the Meet Our Scholars section, each one of these individuals wrote essays, and it stood out to, to both of us that really epitomize this idea of the forever soldier or, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine, that kind of language, because every single one of them wants to dedicate at least something that they're learning or they're going to learn um, at school to giving back to the military community and reaching back and lending that helping hand to be a mentor to say, hey, this is what I've done. This is how to get here or this is how you should do the transition process because while there are great programs on each one of the military posts now with SFL TAP and Hire Our Heroes, 
it is a very daunting process of getting out of the military. I feel like getting into the military is very easy. You just go, you sign a bunch of paperwork, you put on like a really flashy uniform that makes you blend into almost anything unless you're wearing ACUs. And then you're in and you're, you're told when and where to be. But when you get out, there's really nothing there to, to guide you as to the finances that are associated with this transition. When you go back to school, who do you contact for GI Bill, paperwork, all that kind of stuff. And then even more so if you're going to the professional workforce straight away, like, what do I wear on my first day? So for me, when I was making that transition and, and how I look at it every single year now with these scholarship applicants, it's like these questions are going to occur every single year. And we just want to be like a one-stop shop to help out. Yeah, we talked about in the past on uh, other episodes talking about like transitioning from the military, going from like the military side to civilian, whether it's through school or work or what have you. Um, but for those that made that transition, it is a you know very challenging transition in one's life. Um, so we're just hoping to somehow you know help a little bit and help blunt some of the you know the huge changes that come with getting out. Yeah. So with this year's scholarship being officially concluded. Um, next year, if you're looking to transition, uh, hit us up. We'll open up the scholarship window probably nine months from now as you start hearing back from the schools and the programs uh, that you're getting into. Uh, and the application process is pretty simple. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll love to just continue to, to help individuals out. Again, the, the partnership with 10,000 um, is enabling us to, to continue to increase uh, the scholarship values and then into the next year now. So we're super, super humbled by our experiences and being able to share a little bit of what Cronus Fit has grown into into this process and what is our main charity drive every year. So uh, thanks to everyone that's listened to the, you know, that's been part of Cronus Fit for the last, are we four years in now? Almost five. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just thanks for everything. This Every single year, this means so much to us when, when we get to send out these these notifications, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's like why we do what, what Cronus fit is. Yeah. It's been kind of wild seeing, you know, the growth of Cronus fit over the last four years. I mean, we started like, was it May of 2017? I think is when we started. And then yeah. since then we're now up to like 30,000 Instagram followers, something like 10,000 daily visitors to the site. And now, you know, even the scholarship, we've grown exponentially in the scholarship to now we're doing four by $2,500, so $10,000 this year on the scholarship. Yeah, and we, when we were kind of thinking um, with the scholarship, like what, what did we want to make it, uh, when we started generating some of the revenue and identifying, okay, we're a nonprofit, where are we going to send these funds? Uh, you'll see on our site, we kind of picked like a bunch of charities almost every single month. In fact, we'd have like a charity of the month. Um, but then we saw the opportunity that the scholarship provided and said, okay, this should be like what Cronus Fit is. This is all year what these funds should should go to. Not saying that we're not going to reach out and help out uh, charities throughout the calendar year, but I, we want this to be our, our legacy going forward. Um, Cronus Fit is known for having probably like three or four things. One, and you can't see me, I'm holding my fingers up if you're not watching the YouTubes. Two, incredibly good-looking owners. I mean, like, Bobby jacked. I look probably like a lean billabong model right now, like circa 2004. Maybe Chris Hemsworth, we're swimming on the beach together, avoiding the shocks. But two, great fitness. And three, we just give him back to uh, Rangers and Soldiers with the, the Cronus Fit uh, Scholarship Program. Yeah, the scholarship has definitely become kind of our, you know, our main effort, if you will. I'm um, so really happy to kind of give back to the, the, those who are looking forward to moving on to the next step. All right, so as many of you know, um, I, I guess last week we talked about Afghanistan. Um, I don't think we should, you know, beat it too much uh, further this week, but. I mean, like, I feel like the elephant in the room is the, the travesty that happened at the gate with the, what is it, 12 Marines and one Navy corpsman that were killed by a suicide bomber, um, and I think well over now 100 Afghans. 
Um, I it it like froze me when I saw that on the news um, because at first you knew when the reports came out, and I think it had, it was like a handful of uh, of Marines that were listed as being killed in action. That with the resources that were on the ground at Hkaya and Bath being closed, that like that sickening feeling of that number will probably go up because they don't have the medical on hand to deal with something like a mass cal event. And then you know how selfless the Americans are going to be in trying to also treat the Afghans um, and dealing with that that chaotic situation. And then seeing that happen, uh, I mean, like it, it broke my heart, man. Um, it is... They're just they're they're all there doing the right thing, and they're it's not a, a it's not supposed to be like a combat situation over there. This isn't like they were fighting in Helmand in two thousand nine two thousand ten, and this happened. This was like a humanitarian mission, trying to help those that have helped us over the last two decades get out. And to see this kind of attack happen, it, it was gut wrenching. It made me really really angry. Um, and I mean, it, it, I felt hollowed watching the whole thing unfold two weeks ago with Afghanistan. And then this just brought it to a whole new level. Um, it's just, it's, it's awful and atrocious. And like, my heart just breaks for, for those, you know, families of the Marines and, and their units and, and the individuals that serve with them. Yeah. It's just, you know, a, just a sad and honestly pretty avoidable situation. I'd have to say, you know. Like, we knew that this day was going to come where we would start, you know, pulling out and taking people with us. And then, um, you know, the, you know, Doha Accords where we, like, made a deal with the Taliban that they would, you know, essentially provide out-of-court-on security while we screened Afghans through to the airfield. And, you know, I think, like, it was just a matter of time for this, you know, this to happen. And it's just a shame that so many um, American service members were, were killed in action and, and many more you know casualties that we don't know about yet. Yeah, exactly. I think there are a couple things that you just brought up there that make a lot of people that have been over there really frustrated. And one of the first that you mentioned was the agreement with the Taliban. I did not think... Well, I'll take that back. I had a feeling that some coordination had to happen between the Taliban and the United States in order to process all of these individuals through HKIA. But I'm still flabbergasted that, you know, six months ago, if you had said, oh, do you think, you know, the United States would have to make an agreement with the Taliban in order to withdraw from Afghanistan, I would have laughed out loud. I would have lolled because in what world do we negotiate with terrorists? It's almost like we are giving them this legitimacy and they completely failed. Like who would have known? Who would have known these individuals would have failed at doing like a simple orderly task of screening individuals and creating a buffer between other, you know, terrorist actors in Afghanistan and then the main gates of HKIA? Who would have thought that they would have failed that? Oh, everyone, literally everyone. Um and now that they have all this tricked out gear, I, I saw a dude with like a Paz 13 on his M4. Like those are the individuals we're relying on to secure our own. And it goes back. There's, you know, everyone on, on Instagram has probably been sharing this kind of stuff. The amount of soldiers that were deployed to secure the capital compared to the amount of soldiers and Marines that we have in Afghanistan to secure tens of thousands of fleeing Afghans. And then, the, the five to 6,000 service members that are still holding strong on what is not Bagram Airfield. Like, again, not to play like, you know, Monday quarterback, but why wasn't this done through Bagram where we have towers, where we have gates, where we have, you know, sectors of fire established to prevent this kind of thing uh, from happening with, you know, shooting or a way to channel and funnel people on it just Oh, it's so frustrating. It is. It's because it's like you said, it's all so avoidable. And it's kind of like, you know, it goes back to our conversation the other week about, 
you know, holding leaders accountable for these actions. And you have like, you know, the CENTCOM commander there. You have all these general officers who, you know, are essentially overseeing these operations and then, you know, have this gross negligence and failure of leadership to, to really plan and execute just a relatively humanitarian mission and not even a combat mission. It's just right. a sad, sad situation. Or it's, it's sharing the information with the Afghans. The Taliban was aware that there was the potential for an ISIS-K attack. The United States knew for sure that one was coming. But the individuals that are going to these gates had no idea. There was a uh, female reporter that is on the ground in Afghanistan that asked the Taliban spokesperson what's to be done uh, about securing these gates and the likelihood of an attack waved it off. But the fact that it wasn't shared with the Afghans on the ground who had no idea that an attack was imminent is also frustrating. You know, if we're going to, before we, we roll into a town, blast on an air horn, get out uh, before the shooting starts when we go into raids, why didn't we have the decency to say, hey, I know it's dangerous trying to get here. You should really avoid the gate tomorrow because there is a there's an imminent attack like that. Where's that decency? Yeah, I mean, you have to also consider, like, from the Afghan perspective, like, even if there was, you know, the threat of attack, you know, I think that a lot of people would make that, you know, that calculus and say that, you know, if they're, this is my chance to get out of Afghanistan to go to another country, and then if I stay here, I might as well be dead. So I, I imagine a lot of people even then would still consider that decision, part of the decision-making calculus as well. Absolutely. But it just goes back to the the trust. If we are over there projecting this like altruistic, transparent effort to get people out and it's already been criticized, this is just adding another level of distrust for American foreign policy right now when the very people that we're supposed to be helping, we can inform of, you know, some ensuing attack. I'm not saying that would have prevented it. But I am saying that it would have been nice probably for these individuals to have at least been prepared or known that this was likely. I'm sure deep down they thought they could have been attacked or someone from the Taliban might have beaten them or shot them on the way, like that being the primary danger. But then to be told, oh, by the way, ISIS is here. They're not agreeing with anyone and they're probably going to try to blow you up like that would have probably been part of that calculus. I just wish that all those cards would have been on the table just for everyone's awareness. Because if the 31st is close, like obviously that push to get there is is going to be greater. But for God's sake, just just tell people what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I, I imagine there is some communication there, but who knows, like as far as, you know, putting it out there. Um, we, you talked about holding leaders responsible. Did you see that? Marine uh, Lieutenant Colonel, I did. Who, I did who made that, that yeah. announcement? What was your feeling on that? Uh, I didn't. I, I will admit, I didn't like watch the whole thing. I just kind of like saw some uh, some things about him, but um, I don't know the full story. Uh, if you know more about it than I do, but it seems like this, you know, O five was essentially you know falling on his own sword and you know saying what had to be what needed to be said and putting it out there. And, you know, I know you were saying that the limited that you had seen and, and researched uh, is probably just the, the same amount I have. But in, in a larger context, he was he's been subsequently removed from that that leadership position. How do you think that that squares with either holding individuals accountable or now larger social media and the military and responding to things and and being able to expose, you know, poor leadership uh, in that manner, do you think individuals should be relieved for that kind of activity? As far as like the uh, service member side, like like going on social media and making like, I mean that aspect. Yeah, like this individual. If if we were to take the the the, the suicide attack out of the equation, um, and this individual was just criticizing his leadership for a, a different event, um, you know, does that warrant? A removal 
uh, for cause from his leadership position, or, or how would you have managed that if you were his, you know, superior or his senior raider? I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward that if you were to, you know, go publicly on the record and talk about and criticize your superiors, that you probably, you know, that's a pretty strong, you know, case for a leap for cause. Um, not to say that, you know, he was wrong in what he said, but, you know, in the military, you know, you don't necessarily have, uh, you know, you've signed away a lot of your rights when you join the military. Things like good order and discipline to enforce good order and discipline. You know, you kind of lose your ability to, to voice, you know, your personal opinion on a lot of these things. And in order to c- continue and uphold a, you know, disciplined and, um, you know, disciplined military, uh, with the, you have to be able to make sure that your decisions aren't questioned and, you know, your actions aren't, you know, put on this public spotlight for everybody to review. I think this is one of my issues that I have with mill Twitter or mill social media i mean like sergeant major has it there's a whole bunch of senior ncos and senior officers that have it they the only thing that i've ever seen come out of it is just cringe material um but like you were saying i want some i want responsibility in the hands of individuals that are making good leadership decisions but i don't know going on and blasting your your superiors on the interwebs is the way to do it. It's clearly a shock and awe tactic, but to take this and then just expand it to all soldiers at all levels, you know, if if this individual was allowed to go on and just, you know, go after uh, the senior leaders on the ground there and say, what would, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Someone needs to be held accountable. If a team leader were to do that, a squad leader, a platoon sergeant, you know, for a platoon leader, a company commander, or a company commander were to do that with a battalion commander in, you know, some austere situation or a future uh, combat deployment, I just think that erodes some of the confidence in the formations that we would have. Um, Because that's the kind of stuff that you want to have it out with your senior leadership Go, go behind, you know, the curtains and have it out. Um, I've certainly done that in every single unit that I've been a part of where I've reached like my boiling point with my company commander or, you know, the, the staff and said, like, we're going to have a coming to Jesus moment here. Um, and again, usually that, that's one of those situations where like I, I might get fired after this, but like this is a serious enough event where I need to say something. But I'm just fearful of mill Twitter turning into a place that then gets exploited by, you know, Russian and Chinese actors who see the the disunity in our ranks and just attack it or, or continually try to divide us um, for all the things that are good with social media. I just think this is one of those things that's really, really bad. It's unfortunate that he's been removed because it seems like a common sense question. But I think it's one of those ones all of us are asking. So, you know, I, I think individuals should be held accountable, rightly so, but I just don't think this is the right way to do it. No, I, I, that's how I agree with that. Like, you know, there's something about saying about, you know, airing your dirty laundry out to public, in the public, you know, like a lot of stuff you take care of behind closed doors with the relevant parties involved and airing your grievances in such a manner, like going on social media and putting it on blast is not both in the public eye and in the unit's eye, you know, going to so distrust and, you know, um, disobedience essentially in the unit. Like I can, you know, just imagine, like, I think we can look at it from a couple of different perspectives, whether it's from you know, the general population that civilians, um, are seeing this like Oh five, Lieutenant Colonel criticizing his superiors, calling them like, you know, incompetent, they wrote one of the public trust in the military. So that is, there's one aspect of it. And then from the, inside the military, like you imagine like a, you know, a private or, a, you know, E4 seeing this O5 lambast his leadership. What's to stop this oath or like E3 from like going on social media and talking shit about his like own platoon leader or a squad leader, like creating that environment inside a unit is, you know, will tear it apart and then just create an environment where everyone just thinks that they have, you know, the ability or the right to just voice their grievances about 
to, on to whoever can, wants to listen to it. So that's not sustainable, I think, for a leadership and you know unit cohesion level. And then, um, and then not to mention like the medical, like the legal side of things, like like legally airing these things out um, on social media, where you might not even have like the you know one the clearance or two like represent the military in such manner. So there's a whole there's a different, you know a lot of different levels of you know of ways that you can look at it and i think on all levels is probably like not a good thing to do this on social media no again empathize with where this individual is coming from completely agree with the question that's being asked just disagree with the manner and the way in which it was done um because again for, for all of you that are listening if you're either in a leadership position or you're not or you will be in a leadership position it's a very fine line that you have to balance because in every single platoon I've been in, I've absolutely loved my Rangers and my soldiers. And you want to be honest with them. And we, you know, we talked about the transparency at the beginning of, of letting the Afghans uh, and the individuals know that there's an imminent attack. It's really hard sometimes to digest that information, either separate emotion when you want to tell those individuals that you're serving with, that you're expecting to go to hell and back with you, that oh, by the way, your boss is an absolute idiot. Like They're going to pick that up, but you don't need to air that down. So I, I can't remember what it was. It was like like air your grievances up, never down. Um, oh, yeah. Because, I, again, I, I've been in a situation where nobody likes the company commander and first sergeant, and you want people to be proud of their unit. Like I've talked shit on the Stetson so many times, I don't need to repeat why I think it's a, a dumb hat. But if everyone in your company has a Stetson and everyone knows it's stupid, if everyone knows it's stupid but absolutely loves that everyone to their left and their right is wearing it, like you can talk about that stupidity, you know, in private, but like everyone else is probably looking at that company going, man, like they are all together. Like, do not fuck with ACO. Do not fuck with CCO. But if you start airing this stuff out, people will look at that and go, oh, they got they got trash leadership. Uh, they're probably going to perform poorly. Um, just just think about it that way. You're going to have experiences where you share too much information um, or you're going to have, you know, instances where you don't share enough. It, it's a it's a growing thing. It's something that all leaders have to do and deal with. Uh, a really good example to see. I think it's in uh, Band of Brothers. One of the first couple of episodes where you know they're they're talking trash on Captain Sobel uh, and, and Dick Winters really just kind of gets them to be quiet, you know, deflects a lot of the criticism. But you know, in seeing the show or reading the book, he dealt a lot of that, dealt with a lot of that in a personal one-on-one basis with Captain Sobel or with the the regimental commander. Um, that you know, that's the way that you do it professionally. That's what makes this a profession of arms, and not you know, some random corporate boardroom where everyone's feelings are taken into account now. Yeah. I think that's a huge like leadership, um, skill is how you interact with your superiors and subordinates. Cause you know, looking back on kind of my like Lieutenant junior officer days, like it's so easy to like take a shit on like your CO and your baton commander or what have you. And saying that, oh, they're the reason why we're doing this dumb thing is because we have to, because our you know our leadership sucks and they're idiots. That's just the, that's such an easy out for you as a leader, just to like push your decisions on somebody else and saying that you're doing it because you're told to do something. And that's just a you know lazy you know leadership tactic of not owning up and saying and fully you know getting buy-in from your guys as to why you're doing something. And I think you know. It's definitely something that I've definitely done as a good JO. It's just like, you know, said my commander was an idiot and this is just a dumb thing. But then taking the that's like taking the easy way out and not having the hard conversation with your guys of like you understanding and like and then framing it in such a manner that, you know, makes sense to your guys without shitting on like putting it all in your chain of command, you know? Right. And you can literally extend this to any event, uh, layouts. Um, random, you know, maybe tactical training and repeated training that you're going to do behind the cough. All that stuff you should be able to articulate if you are a good leader in some way, shape, or form, how it's making you better. 
or giving your squad leaders some left and right limits in order to develop them and say, I know this training is lackluster or it's missing something, but come to me with two or three recommendations to beef it up or bolster it so we can get some ancillary stuff knocked out and I will 100% give you the leeway and work with you to, to get you know your squad this training. Um, that's the kind of stuff that will separate individuals that kind of just exist um, in their leadership roles from the ones that take a formation and make it better than when they got there. Uh, because again, like Bobby said, getting that buy-in and developing them so that they see their work product like on the, the larger focus means a whole hell of a lot when you know input is taken and, and really taken with the intent of turning it around and making something of really cohesive cohesive the being the keyword their unit yeah and, and you know there's like uh i think you know a thing that i kind of struggle with and that's like a maturity level thing too that i didn't really appreciate like as a jo but like kind of important how important it is to you know uphold the chain of command and what have you because you know it's too easy for you know this this descent to you know be sown throughout the the formation and then it just creates a culture and you know a unit culture where it's okay to talk shit about the person like you know you're talking shit about your superiors um and then ultimately like creates you know an environment within unit that is not cohesive people don't want to like work hard and just want to like check out more than if everyone was on the same page and work together right and the only times that i would really ever take issue with my commanders would be if they stepped on the toes of my team leaders, squad leaders, soldiers, rangers. If there was a specific task that, you know, every ranger squad leader knew that they planned for, whether it comes to routes, HLZs, like that is what they have been then raised to to develop by that point. If I had a company commander come in and they said like, oh no, this is the route we're going to take, or if this is, you know, how we're going to land, or this is how we're going to board the aircraft, that's where you should go, well, whoa 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 time out that's not how it works here like that's my squad leader's job um those are those instances where like immediately you know you see a red flag come up and like you have to address the situation not let it fester uh because your individuals need to see you put your neck on the line sometimes even publicly to say like you can tell us that we have to go raid this target and we're going to be doing an offset but you're not planning the route. You are not establishing checkpoints. You are not coming out with, you know, a primary and alternate landing plan. That That's not your job. You're just there, you know, almost like mine. Uh, I've got two clickers on my chest. Um, yeah, checkpoint one, uh, Roger, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. And then you almost forget that you're carrying a weapon sometimes. Like, you know, find your role, stay in it. Uh, like The Rock says, know your role and shut your mouth. Yeah, so, you know, kind of an aside, but I think that's, you know, definitely something that I struggle a lot with as a J.O. is trying to, like, make my guys happy versus, like, take on that, you know, that leadership burden and leadership challenge of really owning decisions and being that guy, that leader that um, where the buck stops with you and, you don't you know, pay for it or, like, you know, put it on somebody else instead of just owning it. Yeah, and if you say something like the buck stops with me, there's no but afterwards. Do not add a caveat to the buck statement because uh, that's not the buck stopping with you. Um, you know, like President Biden has said that statement multiple times and oh, then yeah. a- added something afterwards that you just go, wait a second, the buck stopped with you, but we're blaming six other people for, for this failure. But those are just empty words. Yeah, was it like the buck stops with me? But but Trump but Trump did this. Trump, generals, soldiers on the ground, the Afghans, Taliban, yeah. ISIS, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, like you name it, Russians. Like you just you got to get away from that stuff because you lose credibility. And this is not like an attack on President Biden. Um, this is just in general. If if you're going to take responsibility for a failure, do not pass that on to someone else who's not present to defend themselves one um but two 
you know, can't even say anything, even if they were because of, of that chain of command that, you know, we were talking about this whole time. Uh, it's just not, it's not a good look. You lose credibility real quick. So I have a question for you. What do you think the, uh, the legacy or like, uh, the fallout from this is going to be in terms of like Washington and Biden, his presidency? I... I feel like the Beltway has a really narrow attention span and with COVID still being a thing and the increase of, you know, the federal government in that program, it'll be relatively easy for them to shift and talk about the Delta strain like, you know, we've been caught up talking about um, or some other, you know, policy related issue uh, that will arise here in whatever the, the next three plus years that he's still in office. But this puts a huge mark uh, and a blemish on his foreign policy. He's already faced issue with how he's dealt with China and Russia, had a huge issue on the southern border, which is is still an ongoing crisis. It's, you know, from the perspective of national security, we talk about COVID, you know, there's a lot of individuals crossing that likely have COVID. I think the last statistic I saw said like, one third or two thirds of Americans, which is a huge shift in numbers, I understand with my science here, um, had COVID uh, in the last year and a half. And is, you know, they've only reflected, you know, 22% of that in the, the data. But we're likely having people cross our border that are carrying COVID or the Delta strain. Um, but his foreign policy is completely lacking and and that credibility in dealing with foreign governments and how the British see us now being able to keep our word, how the Afghans see us. We You talked about it last week, but with China and Taiwan, um, China's beefing up their efforts there because they just see our presence and our commitment to others as being anything but strong. Um, I don't think he responds from this absent like another military crisis where we can flex on a on a nation or on a terrorist organization um you know in the shock and all way in which we entered afghanistan or entered iraq do you think that uh there'll be new i guess challenges coming from like non-state actors or even state actors like russia and china preying upon kind of using this sentiment now that um are gonna like try and you know, force our hand in something. Absolutely. I, I don't know what, I don't think Russia really beyond Crimea and just tensions flaring there will be anything they focus on. I don't see them having the resources or the capabilities to really flex on anywhere else in the world beyond kind of just, you know, Europe proper. But China is going to use this as that opportunity. They're, they're already heavily invested in Africa, well more than we are. Uh, they're investing in Afghanistan. They've got working relations with Pakistan um, and the Taliban. Now they're they're meeting with them to talk about the 3.1 or three something trillion dollars worth of natural resources for batteries that Afghanistan is sitting on. If China wants to take the world police role and a larger role, do it, do it because it's. I mean, for the U.S. since World War II, it has been almost like a burden and this exhaustive continuation of military conflicts for us to protect the interests of others. Um, Because a lot of it's always politically driven. You look at the 50s, 60s, 70s with with communism and how many tens of thousands of Americans died over that political uh, rift. Um, the 90s with oil and getting ourselves entangled for the first time in the Middle East, and then obviously the last two decades. If China wants to take on that role and they want to volunteer their sons and daughters to preserve their way of, you know, totalitarian government, um, like, go ahead, try it out. Just, I want the U.S. to kind of like close the borders and not the sense of like preventing people from coming, but just like, Let's train our military. Let's get back to a near peer, um, you know, fighting force. But let's be way more selective with where we enter. I mean, like it took a lot to get us into World War II in Europe. Um, not so much with with Japan, but like we need to we need to sit back on our heels for a second, catch our breath, and say, 
where are we going 50 years from now and stop kind of fighting these decades worth of like random conflicts that just lead to a ton of spending and even more so a, a ton of death. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, you know, I always wonder like what's the net we're going to be in 10 years from now. And then there's still another, what, three years in Biden's administration, two and a half years. So you have to imagine there's going to be something that's going to pop up in the next couple of years. Yeah. I wish we spent like, Literally, if we spend a tenth of the time in planning for and engaging in conflicts and put those resources to building relations in Latin and South America, like our neighbors, I don't care about Canada, so I'm, I'm ignoring the Canucks. But if we looked at developing our continent and our the, the neighboring continent and creating uh, you know, a, 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 an attainable pathway to citizenship, like we have tens of millions of illegal immigrants in the country that are contributing to our economy that I guarantee if you gave them the opportunity to become citizens, they're already here. It's not like you're going to be able to make them leave. But if we just put those efforts to like, let's get these people to become part of the United States, to pay taxes, to make them feel like they're part of our culture and our economy. And like, let's grow because that's what has made America so wonderful. There's this opportunity of taking people and different cultures putting it into a big mixing pot and seeing like, you know, just the success that comes from it. Like that should be our focus. That should be what President Biden wants to make his legacy for the next three years is this country came out of a, of a bloody scrap in the Middle East. It was bloodier than it should have been on the exit. But after that, for three years, we helped undocumented immigrants in this country become legal citizens. We developed some sort of workable, attainable health care. We cut costs and increased, uh, you know, opportunities for educational programs for the the children of these millions of, of immigrants that are coming in every single year. And we're making people like really proud to be American um, and, and not so politically divisive. Like if we don't have spending on war and war hawks in Congress and we have people that are focused on social programs, they can be Republican led. I, I don't care. But let's at least get buy-in from communities and say, hey, we're going to reform voting rights. We are going to get rid of gerrymandering. Like, I want an active liberty-type democracy here where we have way more buy-in. Like, America is about the people. Let's focus on our people. But you think that's, do you really think that's going to happen, though? I mean, I think the next, you know, looming thing is going to be COVID and, you know, things are shutting back down again the states are shutting back down i only imagine i can only imagine you know kind of the you know are we gonna go back to 2020 era 2020 times of like you know everything shut down nothing nobody's working i don't think we'll go back to that because you know like the, the 10th amendment is pretty clear the the public health and welfare falls squarely on the states and the state responses i don't see a federal response occurring but what I do see is billions of dollars now that the United States was spending abroad now coming back to the United States and, and being distributed to communities, you know, across the country. At least that's my hope. Um, and, you know, just kind of improving the lives of of Americans. Yeah, I really hope so. I just hope it doesn't go back. It is so frustrating. And then Christina talks about almost every day when she comes home from work that you know their hospitals getting slammed with covid patients and they're all pretty sick people they're all like 40s and 50s now now is this the second wave like the first wave was all like old people that were getting sick right now it's all like young 40s and 50s pretty much otherwise healthy coming in with you know pretty severe covid because they're surprise surprise unvaccinated yeah that i mean that's something we're gonna definitely talk about for the next year, I know, you know, like my my buddy in in Florida, uh, who's an absolutely gorgeous ranger. Shout out to his lady for listening to our podcast and keeping him informed of what we talk about. Um, they were all sick with COVID, and you know, for like a year, we've been talking about, oh, it's it's not bad, but like with 
what you said last week, you know, we get these new strains and we get these new strains because people either don't get vaccinated or, you know, we're not wearing the masks and it transfers and it has the opportunity to mutate where it maybe otherwise wouldn't. It's just frustrating because there's so many other vaccines and we've talked about this and uh, again, won't beat a dead horse. There's so much shit people put in their body. Like how many of these people go to, to Starbucks and get drinks with all these additives and they have no fucking clue what was put in their coffee, but they're worried about something which is now FDA authorized has somehow been, you know, uh, made unsafe because we can't trust the federal government when two years ago we were trusting them or a year ago it was Operation Warp Speed. It was the President Trump's administration that pushed this and made this so readily available. Like people have such short term memories um, it's just super frustrating. It's like, it's just so easy to do the right thing. We were talking before we started recording, you know, I've got my Iron Man in less than three weeks. My workout today crushed my soul. I'm going to be pissed if it gets canceled in the next two weeks. Um, I know the, the race is going to absolutely suck, but I want to do that suck. Um, and if it gets taken from me because, you know, we've got increasing cases, it's just, it's just frustrating. It's just preventable. Like, if you think you're you're Superman and, and you can be fine, I implore you then don't go to the doctor ever again for anything. Because um, if you think the flu is something that you can get over, well, then guess what? Like diabetes, you shouldn't be taking the diabetes medication. You have no idea what's in that. You didn't do the research. You don't know how fast it was pushed through. Did you Do, do you know when the FDA approved it and or when or how? So... You know, when when you've been sucking down butter products for the last 45 years of your life on every single meal and have basically been putting steaks in a blender right into your arteries, I don't want to hear your shit when you go to the hospital trying to get checked out for that. Okay, where we have to amputate your arm because, you know, you were cutting the grass and you got tetanus because you didn't want to get a tetanus shot. Like, that's on you, dude. I don't want to deal with that. I thought it was, uh, do you see something in the news? I think we should talk about this with, like, uh, in Florida, a bunch of doctors, like, quit and nurses quit. And then they're getting, like, lambasted for not helping other people. Did you see that? Yeah. The, again, I had a mixed feeling about that. Uh, and I know you're a doctor, so I think we should start the conversation with you. So I know how not to offend you going forward with this if I do. Yeah. Um, so I will say that, you know, it's, I think that's healthcare has kind of been a, um, unspoken, maybe unrecognized facet of what's been going on the last year and a half, two years, you know, the hospital systems are very overwhelmed, doctors overwhelmed, nurses overwhelmed, everybody's overwhelmed. And the interesting thing is that now, now more than ever, there's a healthcare shortage in America where nurses and doctors are now retiring or getting out early or just quitting their jobs for second careers because, you know, they're just burnt out from everything that's been going on. And it can be, I mean, personally, I haven't taken too much care of too many COVID patients, but I can imagine if that's all you've been doing for the last year and a half, taking care of COVID patients. And then, you know, we're done, like, you know, the vaccines here, people are getting, like, things are going back to normal, and then we get hit with, like, the second strain of this and people are dying still and i can only imagine kind of the burnt out and the frustration that you would feel because you know you have people that are refusing the vaccinations and then coming to the hospital really sick with covid getting intubated and and then you still have these patients saying that oh i don't believe in the vaccine still when they're you know literally dying um i can only imagine how frustrating that is to be um, on the recipient or receiving end of that conversation where Christina said the same thing where it's like she had a patient come in with COVID. He's like 40 years old and has like diabetes, so not well to begin with, but, you know, not vaccinated. And, you know, he's like, like, I don't want like, why aren't you guys giving me ivermectin or chloroquine? And then his wife will call in and she's like, I don't want him to die. But it's like, it's very preventable at this point. Like we know that if you're vaccinated, you have less you know, severe consequences of getting COVID, even if you are sick. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm actually kind of, I look kind of favorably on these doctors because I think a lot of people take healthcare as like, uh, take it for granted and that, you know, they think that, that it's their right to have good healthcare. But, you know, if you don't take care of yourself and then you expect other people to work and sacrifice on your behalf when you very easily could have done something to prevent it, 
you know, that's kind of on you, and that's kind of you reaping the own consequences of your own actions. And then not to mention on the healthcare, like, administration aspect of it, you know, hospitals are still, you know, it's a very predatory system and a lot of healthcare systems where, you know, hospital administration is, like, making, you know, hand over fist, essentially, money from the government for COVID. But then, you know, these all this revenue doesn't trickle down to the people that actually work in the hospital. Right. Um, everything or all the hospitals around us are like offering like $10,000 signing bonuses for nurses because they're so short on staff because everybody's left the system. So it's just like, uh, you know, I think healthcare and it doesn't really get spoken too much in everyday, like most people, it's not in the conversation, but you know, I think that we're going into kind of a crisis mode in terms of the healthcare of America because we're now facing a shortage of nurses and staff and people that are willing to go into this profession that is, you know, on the whole, like kind of shit on by the public, uneducated public, you know? Oh, as being something that, you know, like I don't need to trust what this person that studied four to eight years has to say because uh, I listened to a, a demagogue. Yeah. And that's like kind of, you know, a lot of doctors are seeing that too. I think that's kind of, shifting nowadays too with um a lot of people that are you know the more talented people are going into other fields that pay better and have better lifestyles than doctors because if you think about like for doctors only fans yeah which is now doing porn again but like for doctors like um you know i'm obviously a little bit biased this situation but you know, for most physicians, like you don't hit your peak earning potential until you're in your early to late thirties, depending on what specialty you go into. And then you talk about like hundreds of thousands, if not like million dollars worth of debt to get to that to med school. And then and you're an physician. idiot because you're in the military as a doctor, so like you're double fucked. Yeah, but I can retire at age twenty or at age forty six and at least get a pension and then go make some real money. But, but that's not the point. You know, I'm not didn't become a doctor to make money but um you know a you lot did for the white lab coat i get it yeah I, I i don't wear that much anymore but um the point being is that i think that in america we take healthcare for granted very much and that we just you know a lot of people just just uh you know think that just because they're sick they have a, a right or deserve to get you know the top treatment that money can pay for it but but they're not willing to, you know, put in the time and effort to make themselves better. Right. I was kind of mixed on this because there were like 70 plus doctors and nurses that stepped out. And I think from a an optics standpoint, it was a poor look again, because if we're going to claim that the hospitals are swamped, if we can't manage floors um, and fill these these vacancies with you know staff to take care of people. Then why do we have so many of these dozens that can take time to come out and and you know protest essentially? Um, you know I understand that some of them are probably off shift, but at the same point, like you signed up to to serve and protect you know the health of of others. And I looked at it from a you know, if we had to go out and we did go out, we're, we're constantly fighting the battles in Afghanistan where we were that the, the police uh, and the local armies could have easily um, and satisfactorily completed. Yet I'm every single day having to take out, you know, my platoon with the mine rollers attached to clear part of Highway 1 or to go and, and interdict on um, the facilitation routes with, where men, weapons uh, and equipment were coming up. Uh, through the desert it's like that that increased and that was annoying but it's like that's what we signed up for so you know if it's not covid what other influx could it be for doctors not to 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 take away from your point of saying like doctors get get burned out because i'd be so i'm frustrated as a civilian dealing with it you know if if you were seeing the same thing over and over again and it was preventable um i think we could take that argument too to we'll how should the response then be to obesity when, you know, we've got a population that's 60, 70 percent overweight, all the comorbidities that are associated with that, that doctors seem to be silent on, too. It's like, well, that that is not as uh, a short term of of an issue as COVID-19 is, but that's a very long term. God, we are constantly dealing with this person's type. Was it type two diabetes that you get? Um, that you inflict on yourself or God, like another person with heart disease because they're overweight or 
man, this idiot could not land a 900 and busted his knee for the second time on the large vert ramp. Tony Hawk, we're not treating you today. Like just kind of where is that where is that line then that we cross of we're not we're not helping these people anymore. I mean, do you see that kind of being um, at odds with that the Hippocratic Oath? I mean, I think it's two different things, though, because, I mean, you know, in the military, I don't think it's you can't contrast or compare like being in the healthcare to being in the military. Like, you know, you're not like, you know, under contract. To, there's no like, you know, oath necessarily. But, you know, at the end of the day, most people do join medicine and take care of other people. But, you know, I think that healthcare as a whole is feeling probably a little underappreciated and, you know, is being pushed and being forced to do things that, um, you know, like I mentioned, like, are totally preventable in terms of COVID and vaccinations. But um, it's also just like, uh, you know, I think healthcare also doesn't has, doesn't do a very good job of, you know, voicing and doing good like PR about things. And um, I think like the New York Times had a pretty good piece uh, recently about um, like in the COVID ICU and like having like nurses wear like GoPros and then kind of documenting that experience. Because I think a lot of people just, you know, just through like social media or what have you or just have this like you know rose and rosy colored picture of healthcare and that like it you know is you just show up for work you give people some medicines they get better or what have you but i don't know i think unless you're in it you don't really can really appreciate kind of the struggles and how difficult it can be it's got to be frustrating too when you have actual patients and not to say that people with COVID 19 aren't actual patients but individuals coming in with some sort of a trauma injury or they're dealing with a, another physical ailment and you don't have bed space for them. Um, you don't have people on on site that can deal with them in a, in, a, in a rapid manner when the emergency escalates because they're dealing with the exact same people, the 40 to 60-year-olds that you were mentioning that are having difficulty breathing because they didn't take a preventable, readily available vaccine. Like That is definitely frustrating but i think it goes back to not a lot of people have connections to those in the military i think that's why a lot of people have kind of written off afghanistan as okay that's affecting someone else but it's the same thing with medicine uh, aside from you and like one other friend i don't know anyone in in medicine um and i'm sure that that's pretty common across the country is is people not having you know friends or family that are in medicine that are getting these you know, firsthand accounts of how bad the hospitals are getting um, or when they say, hey, it's going to get worse and, and not understanding what that looks like. Yeah, like I think it was a good point they brought up about kind of the bed capacity. Like in our hospital, um, at any point in time, there's up to like five to ten people that are boarding in the ED because there's no beds available in the actual hospital. So, um, you know, there is definitely increased stress on healthcare systems because you have people that have COVID that are like going to be on a ventilator for like, you know, months possibly at a time that are just sucking up space and resources that could be used on other people with, you know, more treatable or more, less morbid conditions. And then you can talk about kind of the, the wasted effort on people with treatable diseases that couldn't get treated. For example, people like cancer that missed diagnosis and screening tests that could have caught like an early stage cancer and then they presented at a later stage and then have a you know a uh, you know a terminal diagnosis when they could have been prevented or treated like months ago but couldn't able, couldn't come in the hospital because there weren't enough beds available or didn't able to get the colonoscopy because you know the co- the colonoscopy suite was shut down because of covid so you know i'm I'm very interested in seeing kind of the future, like the data coming out about the true cost of COVID in terms of preventable deaths, but also in the second and third order effects from having hospital care, hospital systems so stressed that they, you know, mistakes happen or there aren't enough resources to go to people with treatable diseases that could have done better. Um, I hope that somebody puts that data point together and, and presents that data because that's something that I'm very interested in seeing. I think what's also interesting is people that are are sitting on their platforms and it this is I'm going to go after uh, Democrats in this situation too that were either hyping up COVID-19 to be way worse uh, 
than you know it apparently was for them in order to go to a, a donor dinner with with ten thousand dollar plates. Nancy Pelosi to host a massive 60th birthday bash. President Obama like maskless. Like that's the kind of stuff that if if I already am in a headspace where I don't trust politicians and don't trust what they're saying about COVID and see that kind of activity, it's going to make me question, well, why do I need to get this vaccine? If it's so deadly and dangerous that being maskless vaccinated, um, we now have to, to go back to a masked environment, but you're still you know, performing these kind of activities. I can't, I can't trust the doublespeak or the Republican governors that are vaccinated that are downplaying, you know, COVID severity in children, knowing that, you know, beds are now going at a much higher rate to children as they enter school or adults um, with, you know, children are going to the hospital at a much higher rate because their children are bringing back the, the Delta strain or we have an increase in breakthroughs. But all these individuals are either vaccinated or have had to go to the hospital themselves to deal with COVID. Like that's the that's like that failure of leadership of being honest and transparent with those that you're supposed to serve, uh, you know, for a political purpose. And it's just super frustrating because it's, again, it's avoidable. If people were just honest and said, I got the vaccine because X, Y, and Z, then when they made a comment like, oh, um, it's everyone's choice and the data suggests that it's, it's really not that bad. It's like, well, then why did you get it? Why didn't you follow your own advice and not get it? Or, you know, Hey, Nancy Pelosi, why the fuck did you go to a maskless dinner with dozens of people sitting shoulder to shoulder unmasked if it's really that bad? I mean, it's just it's such a bad look and it's so hard to 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 create like a, a credible source of of what covid really means aside from Chronosfit, because we are number one uh, in the world for credibility. So it's just frustrating. Yeah, and I think, you know. There's so much out there between all the different news sources that have become more or less politicized that nobody really knows what to believe. And, you know, you have people out there that, you know, are accounts and sources that intentionally give you bad information in order to downplay something or upplay something else. So, you know, it's hard. I get it. It's like hard to know what is right, what is wrong, what to believe, what not to believe. And then. I don't know. I just know that the hospital, it sucks right now in the hospitals and the hospitals across the country are short of staff and that that is having second, third or effects across the country where people are not getting, you know, good, good health care and that we can't keep asking, um, you know, public service or like, you know, people in public service like EMS and, you know, police and healthcare to continue sacrificing and pushing themselves to, you know, because people aren't willing to get a vaccine and do all the things that you know prevent it themselves. Yeah, I'll be interested to see where we are in you know a couple of months when schools are really like in full effect, um, back in swing. Like a lot of a lot of kids don't go back until September, um, so I'm sure those states are going to see an influx of cases. I, I don't know what this is going to look like for testing. I'll be interested to see what the booster shot looks like, to be honest. I think they were saying, you know, eight months was the recommended time period between uh, the second or the full dose uh, with this booster. And now they're talking about five months um, being that operable window and, and like whether somewhere like Fordham requires me to get the booster just to get on campus um, like they have with the, the vaccine and, and their own mask mandate. Um, again, I just want to fast forward to a time where I am maskless, uh, where this face is blessing the path, the subway, the streets of New York. You know, there's there's something better to look at than the skyline, and it's right here. It's got its own skyline if I turn a certain direction. Um, those are the things that I was put on this earth to do, and I'm not doing it. I, I look like like a fucking bumper car with a mask on, like a light blue and white bumper car. And that is stupid. Yeah. I'm kind of, uh, now that, you know, the DOD is mandating vaccines now, I'm kind of curious to see how many people are going to get like, uh, you know, chaptered out now or, cause I think they're going to do like a disarmable discharge for this now. Yeah. I'll, I'll be interested. And, you know, for those that have served a long while that are questioning whether they should get the vaccine, 
you didn't question all the other shots that you've given up you've been given up to this point or whether emergency use was used uh, when the vaccines were originally created. You probably didn't bitch this much on social media, even though it wasn't a thing when you were ordered to go do a raid in a dangerous place or to pull a fire guard shift on a random cop that you knew was going to be mortared or attacked. But you're, you're completely fine with jeopardizing your career over a shot that just that like that's the hill you want to die on um it doesn't make much sense to me but again it's to your right like you know via con dios dead space you thought we ended didn't you <laughs> um anything else you want to end with uh i think we'll start wrapping with that yeah, if you have not seen Vacation Friends on Hulu with John Cena, uh, another individual that when I'm jacked I've been compared to, uh, that movie is fucking hilarious. It is so good. And he plays a Special Forces veteran uh, in the film, but unlike a lot of SF dudes nowadays, uh, doesn't you know just go and tell everybody um, that he's SF. Uh, he's the quiet professional, the, the type that, you know, isn't on social media. So it's a, it's a great movie. Um, and you know, surprisingly it does deal a little bit with like PTSD, a shocker spoiler. Sorry. I didn't put that warning out there. Um, but it's a, it's a hilarious movie. It's almost like, uh, you know, what, what you want to see with a John Cena, just jacked shirtless and, you know, just being, um, a savage and, you know, savage in comedy instead of Randy Orton. I've read nothing else. To, nothing recently that I've watched that's worth mentioning. Well, that's frustrating. You're so, oh, that's right, because you're in a hospital doing your job. See, I'm just a student, man. I I read my shit, and then I I watch TV. All right, more Dead Space. We, we'll we'll pick up the banter again. Um, but again, shout out to to all of our Cronus scholars. Congratulations. Uh, if you or someone's going to transition next year. Drop your application to us. Um, would love to, to review that. If you have questions, if you've already transitioned, um, you know we can try to connect you with folks uh, in the right department. Huge thanks again to, to 10,000. And uh, please implore others to, to do the right thing with vaccines if you really do want to see this face. Um, otherwise, I should just start... Pro- you know what? I'll protest and wear a mask next week. Just kidding. I'm not because YouTube, you're free to do what you want. All right, guys, we'll we'll end it with that. We will catch you guys next time. Will not be next week, but maybe the week after. We shall see. Peace. Later.